in your Bibles to Luke, We're the, and he chose Peter. There, we did Luke. But you can turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be looking around in 1 Peter. So even though we're actually in Luke, we're just kind of launching off of the fact that Jesus picked Peter uh, as an apostle. And uh, we've been looking at that for several weeks. I was looking... Uh, on the internet and in, in my different books, and I found some different epitaphs, a couple funny ones. Uh, Ellen Shannon, uh, 26 years, died 20, uh, 26 years old, of Girard, Pennsylvania, has this epitaph written on her gravestone. Who was fatally burned March 21st, 1870, by the explosion of a lamp feel, filled with... R.E. Danforth's non-explosive burning fluid. (laughs) A dentist named John Brown wrote this in his epitaph. Stranger, approach this spot with gravity. John Brown is filling his last cavity. (laughs) I want you to know, the first service didn't get those at all. I don't know what to do. I couldn't wake them up. I thought I did the first one and they, it was quiet, pin drop quiet. I thought it was kind of funny. Um, I did John Brown. I think one person went, huh, that was it. So anyways, you guys are a lot more awake than the first service. We need to kick up the coffee octane or something. Alexander the Great epitaph reads, a tomb now suffices for him whom the world was not enough. Isn't that something? The guy conquered the whole known world and it still wasn't enough for him. Just goes to show that you can stuff yourself full of the world and still not be satisfied. Benjamin Franklin's epitaph reads, The body of B. Franklin, printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here, food for worms. For it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more elegant edition, corrected and improved by the author. That's great, isn't it? Copernicus, who was the great mathematician, his epitaph reads, I do not seek a kindness equal to that given to Paul, nor do I ask the grace granted to Peter, but the forgiveness which thou grants granted to the robber. That earnestly I crave. John Newton, who, of course, is a hymn writer and preacher. He was a man who in his younger years was quite the rebel. Uh, He was involved in the slave trade. He stowed away in a ship. He... um, he, was, he ended up being sold to slaves in Africa. So he was a slave of some slaves in Africa. He eventually escaped. He lived with some very primitive natives until a missionary came along, shared the gospel with him. And of course, his life was changed forever. He began to get serious. He eventually became a sea captain, a minister and hymn writer. He wrote his own epitaph and it reads this. Sacred to the memory of John Newton, once a libertine and blasphemer and slave of slaves in Africa, but renewed, purified, pardoned, and appointed to preach the gospel which he had labored to destroy. That's a great one, isn't it? Two Christians were driving down uh, the road. They were doing some road work. And at the end of the repair zone, there was a sign that said, construction ended. Thank you for your patience. And one of them remarked, I think that would make a good epitaph for my life. (laughs) And my question to you is this. When you die someday and people put an epitaph on your gravestone, what would you like them to write on that gravestone that would be true of your life. And more importantly, if you were to die today and they did write an accurate epitaph of your life, what would it say? 
Here lies the body of, insert your name, who lived for what? Or, insert your name, whose life passion was what? What would be that accurate description of your life in a line? Would it give glory to God? Would it be a testimony of God's grace working in your life? Would your epitaph depict a life wasted in the world? Or a life invested in time and eternity for the glory of God? This morning as we come to Peter, we've been looking at Peter and his three phases of life. His first phase we talked about was his training phase, which is, appears in the Gospels. He is a very rough individual, impulsive, impetuous, loud, boisterous, not very tactful, you know, bull in the china closet type of a guy. And yet, through the years, Jesus trains him. We've looked at that. Then after that time period, he then is transformed into the new Peter, the rock. And we see him in Acts chapter 1 through 12, and just a little mention in Acts 15, being the rock that Jesus wanted him to be. I mean, he is fearless. He is proclaiming the gospel with boldness. He is suffering for Christ and rejoicing. He's doing miracles. It's just a whole different guy. You're wondering, is this the same guy? It's the same guy. The same guy transformed by the grace of God. And then what's interesting is, is after that phase of his life, we don't really know what happened. I mean, you can go through the the rest of the book of Acts and he's never mentioned a single time. And I find this interesting because he is a major player. He is the leader of the apostles. He is the key figure. It's, It's Peter, 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 all the way through the first part of Acts. And at the end, nothing He gives way to Paul. Paul is now the guy. Paul is writing the books. Paul is doing it. And it makes you wonder what was going on. Well, this latter part of his life is what we want to look at this morning, which we will call his final or late ministry phase, maybe his epitaph years. That is those years that characterize What Peter finally was before he ascended into glory. And even though you can, there's not anything mentioned in the book of Acts, there is a few little hints in the New Testament. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, and chapter 3, verse 22, Paul talks about these little personality cults they were having, you know, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, and I am of Peter. So that tells us that the Corinthians probably knew Peter. Also in 1 Corinthians 9, 5, Peter says, Hey, don't the apostles have the right to bring along a believing wife? Which tells us that they knew Peter brought along a believing wife with him when he ministered. Which tells us that Peter most likely ministered to the church of Corinth. Which is kind of great to know that. But we don't know how long, whether he was just stopping through on a weekend or whether he was there three years. We don't know any of the details. Now, Paul does mention Peter a little bit in Galatians as he's summarizing how he became an apostle and kind of the stages of his life. And in Galatians 1.18, he just says that after his conversion, he met Peter in Jerusalem. So we know that Peter was in Jerusalem for a time. He was there at the Acts Council in Acts 15. Then in Galatians 2, 7 through 9, Paul tells us that Peter's ministry was considered to be a great one. It was towards the Jews and he was seen as a pillar in the church. Paul said, God sent me to the Gentiles and sent Peter to the Jews. And that this Peter guy was seen as a pillar in the church. I mean, he's, he's a key player. Of course, right after that, Paul says, and by the way, I had to rebuke the pillar for being a hypocrite, siding with the Judaizers. But that's it. That's pretty much all we know, except for one more little statement at the end of First Peter. Turn there at the very, very end. First Peter chapter 5, verse 13, where there is a little statement about Peter's location and area of ministry, where he says this, 
First Peter 5.13, she who is in Babylon chosen together with you sends you greetings. Now, some people have said, well, obviously, uh, Peter was ministering in Babylon. You know, just take the little interpretation. The problem is, is Babylon at that time was destroyed. It was nothing more than a dusty spot in the middle of the desert. There was nothing happening there. It was, it was laid waste. It was just filling up with archaeological dust. There was nothing going on there. And some people say, yeah, and his wife was with him there. And she is the she being referred to. Well, that's not very likely that Peter would be ministering to the jackals and coyotes and Babylon. Others believe, and this is the more common, that Babylon is a code name. A code name possibly for Egypt, but most likely for Rome. Because at this time when Peter wrote this, he wrote 1 Peter around 65 AD and 2 Peter about 67 or early in 68 AD. At that time, Nero was persecuting the Christians in the church. What was happening is, is Nero was a little psychotic, set fire to Rome, blamed it on the Christians. And he had this big Colosseum type place, which he called his circus. And he would do things like dip Christians in, fi- in tar and light them on fire and feed them to beasts and boil them and tear them to pieces and do all kinds of things unmentionable things to them as entertainment. And so most believe that what Peter is saying is, is listen, she who is in Babylon, that is Rome, but I'm not going to use the name, sends her greetings. Now, some people say, well, it was Peter's wife, but probably not. It's probably a reference to the church there. You see, what Peter didn't want to do is to have his letters fall into the hands of somebody who would get it back to Nero, who then would say, hey, there's a church here. Let's hunt them down. Let's find them and let's wipe them out because he was really against them. And so most likely the she here, uh, the chosen together with you is nothing more than the church at Rome. But we don't know. Now, outside the Bible, there are several early church fathers who wrote within about a hundred years of Peter's death, and that is Clement, Ignatius, and another early Christian work called the Ascension of Isaiah, and they all hint that Peter was in Rome and died there under the persecution of Nero. Later in the second century AD, Dionysius, uh, Eusebius, Irenaeus, and Tertullian all tell us that Peter was martyred in Rome and that he was martyred in the same way Christ was martyred by crucifixion. Origen, who is uh, one of the early church fathers, he wrote around 300, 325, I think, um, A.D. He uh, speaks of Jesus being crucified upside down. Supposedly, Origen says that Peter did not find himself worthy to be crucified in the same manner as Jesus. And so he begged them to crucify him upside down. And so they did. Of course, we don't know this for certain. These are just things that are passed down. There is no certainty these things. But the accumulation of all of these early church fathers writing about this makes us fairly certain that Peter ministered and died in Rome towards the end of his life. Now, if you were to go to St. Peter's Basilica in Rome today, they would tell you that Peter's bones are buried under that basilica. It makes you wonder, how do they know that? Well, let me tell you. What happened was, supposedly, Peter was crucified at Nero's circus, and there was a cemetery nearby, which is true, and they supposedly put him to rest there, his remains to rest in a grave uh, with a small tomb um, commemorating him. Pilgrims supposedly coming through would come and stop and worship there and hold services there in this cemetery. And uh, it was a good place because Christians uh, weren't superstitious like the Greeks, the pagans, and so they would a lot of times, that's why they live in the catacombs and they would hang out in cemeteries because, you know, the cooties would scare away the pagans and they could, you know, have some peace there. Supposedly, in 324 AD, Constantine, who was, of course, the first, um, quote, Christian emperor, he supposedly built, he didn't supposedly, he supposedly, well, he didn't want to say, supposedly the, the tomb was there and he built a huge basilica. He did build a basilica around there. That is a huge complex, a huge, like a church commemorating complex to honor St. Peter. That structure stood there for 1200 years. But then later, 
uh, towards uh, right before the Reformation, um, they uh, the Catholic Church decided that it was so old that it was really irreparable. It had been worn, all the stones had been worn from water and weather. And so they decided to knock it all down, which they did. And then they built what is now the edifice of St. Peter's Basilica. And supposedly Peter's remains are there, but... There were some questions about that. And in the 30s, people are saying, well, how do we know his tomb's there? You know, you don't know that for certain and blah, blah, blah. And so the Catholic Church commissioned some Jesuit priests to go down, dig underneath the basilica in Rome and to find out if he was there. Well, they found a lot of different tombs because remember, it was a cemetery. I think they found something like 20 different tombs, most of them pagan with all sorts of pagan symbols on them. And in 1950, when the excavations were completed, the Pope confirmed that they had found the tomb, relics and remains of Peter. Of course, you couldn't really confirm that. Somebody said there was some remains of a horse, a chicken, um, a man and a woman that they displayed, some expert. Later in 1968, a different Pope announced that the true remains were found And a whole new story came up when the Jesuit priests were digging and excavating. There was supposedly an archaeologist who came in there, snuck in there, saw that they weren't handling the the materials well and that they were destroying evidence. And so he worked in there secretly, removed the, found the tomb of Peter, removed the bones and hid them. After his death, his widow came to the Pope and said, you know, my husband hid the bones and here they are. And, you know, and so there's this big mystery, you know, it's like the shroud of Pruin or whatever. But regardless of where Peter is buried, Regardless of all the legends or the truths or whatever they are, we don't know. There are some things that we know for certain. And those things are contained in the books of First and Second Peter. Because Peter did write these books, they are inspired by the Holy Spirit, and they remain inscripturated in our Bibles. Now, the bad part is, is that These two little letters here are not the life and times of Peter the Apostle. So we don't know all the details. The good part is, is that by reading through these books, we can begin to understand what Peter was like in the latter years of his life. Now, mind you, he wrote these books right before he died. One, the first Peter, probably about three years before he died. Second Peter, right before he died. So he is a man who lived as a fisherman, met Jesus, spent Jesus' three years with Jesus, was used in incredible ways, helped get the church started, and has some 30 years of ministry under his belt. So he is just, you know, he is a a well-aged apostle. With a lot of experience. He's seen the miracles. He's seen thousands come to Christ. He's seen life transformed. He's seen persecution. He's seen it all. He's traveled around. And now he is at the end of his life. And he writes these two books. So. What I did is, is I thought, okay, knowing that, I'm going to read through these books. So I began to read through these books over and over again, very slowly. And I began to write down on a piece of paper different themes I kept seeing in here because I had to say something this morning and I couldn't preach both books. So I started making a list and I got seven things and I thought, I cannot preach seven things. So then I thought, you know, three of them are really big. So I got three things. And I started working on them, and I thought, no, that's too much. So I got one thing, and I'm going to tell you that this morning. The one thing, and that is this. The one grand passion of Peter's life. What is the grand passion of Peter's life? And it is this, his love for Christ. That is the grand passion that goes through all the books. When you go through the book, there's one thing you cannot escape. And that is Peter loved Jesus. Now, when I began to think about this, I thought, well, obviously. Because you remember that before Jesus ascended, the last conversation he had with Peter was, Peter, do you love me unconditionally? Lord, you know, I like you a lot. Tend my lambs. Peter, 
Do you love me unconditionally? Lord, you know I like you a lot. Shepherd my sheep. Peter, do you even like me or love me a lot? Lord, you know all things. Tend my sheep. Now, I don't know about you, but that statement, that threefold question thing is haunting. It's daunting. And I'm sure that all the way through Peter's life, he remembered that time. You think he ever forgot that? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you even like me? And I'm sure it became Peter's goal to make sure that he got to the place in his life where he could say, Lord, you know I love you unconditionally. I mean, wouldn't that be your goal? That would be my goal. That should be every Christian's goal, right? Where we can get to the place where we can stand before the Lord and say, Lord, I love you unconditionally with just pure, unadulterated love as you are my Lord and you are reigning in every area of my life. And so that haunting statement surely followed Peter all of his years. And so when I began to read these books, thinking of that, I thought, you know, that's it. That's it. That is the unifying theme between first and second Peter, a love for Christ. He reveals his passion and love for Christ in three different ways, three different ways. And these three ways are the same ways all of us as believers need to show our love to Christ. Now, before we look at those passions, the grand passion, which is kind of broken into three sections, I want to just answer a fundamental question that a lot of Christians don't seem to know the answer to. And that is this. How do we express love to Christ? I mean, when you say, I love you, Jesus, what does Jesus want? Fuzzies, warm fuzzies. See, a lot of people think, well, if I go to church and, you know, I sing some songs I like and they make me feel good and I leave church feeling good. I I love Jesus, even though I live like the devil all week. Now, I may live in rebellion all week, but man, when I go to church, man, you know, I, I feel good. And so I love Jesus. No, no. John in his gospel and his epistles answers this question emphatically. We love Christ by obeying his word. That's what he says. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 14, verse 15 and 21 and 23 and 24 and 1510, John records that in the upper room when the Lord was Instituting what we just celebrated, communion, five times Jesus said something to this effect, or exactly like this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Five times. Now think about that. Jesus is about ready to die. He's telling him he's going to leave. Judas is betraying him. And he keeps saying, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And by the way, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And by the way, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I mean, you know, he's making a point here, isn't he? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And John is very affected by this. Of course, he was there. And that is why when he writes first John, there is this huge theme of love that goes through the book. He talks about different ways of expressing love to Christ. And then he summarizes all of these different ways in first John five verses two through three, where he says this. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God And observe his commandments. For this is the love of God. That we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. You want to know if you love Christ? You look at your life and you ask yourself, do I keep his commandments? Why? Because the only way we can express love to Christ is to obey Christ according to his word. That's it. It's not about... Mere feelings. Now, I'm not trying to say that, you know, uh, there are no feelings in loving Christ. Don't get me wrong, because there are, there should be. But know this, love is doing, doing right towards God and others according to his word. 
Feelings are things that happen in the midst of love. And so you should have feelings and passion. But mind you, there are times when you may have feelings to do one thing, but love tells you to act contrary to your feelings, to do what's right. Paul is clear when he talks about the absolute essential criteria of loving Christ. He he tells us, That it is no small thing for you will either have a love for Christ and live in heaven or you will hate Christ and end up in hell. There is no middle ground. In 1 Corinthians 16.22, Paul says, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Now think about that. If anyone does not love the Lord... He is to be accursed. Now, see if you can follow this simple syllogism, a little logical phrase. You love Christ by keeping his commandments, correct? Not, yeah, good. If you don't love Christ, you are accursed, right? We just read read it. Therefore, everyone who does not keep Christ's commandments is accursed because they do not love him. Well, that is pretty sobering, isn't it? Your eternal destiny rests on the true answer to the question, do you love Christ? Jesus asks you the same question that he asked Peter, do you love me unconditionally? And we've got to get to the place in our life where we say, yes. Now, you may be out there and you may be thinking to yourself, well, Jack, I'm a little fearful now. I mean, I'm not perfect and I know I'm a sinner and I know that, you know, I need, you know, a lot of help. And I know I'm still growing in the Lord. And I want to be honest here when I answer the question, do I love Christ? I want to, you know, be truthful and sincere. But could you give me some more help? And I will. J.C. Ryle in his classic work, Holiness, tells us what it means to love Christ. And this is what he says. Now, as I read this, you look at your life. The true Christian is one whose religion is in his heart and life. It is felt by himself and his heart. It is seen by others in his conduct and life. He feels his sinfulness, guilt and badness and repents. He sees Jesus Christ to be that divine savior whom his soul needs and commits himself to him. He puts off the old man with its corrupt and carnal habits and puts on the new man. He lives a new and holy life fighting habitually against the world, the flesh and the devil. Christ himself is the cornerstone of his Christianity. Ask him what he trusts for forgiveness of his many sins, and he will tell you in the death of Christ. Ask him what righteousness he hopes to stand innocent in the day of judgment. He will tell you the righteousness of Christ. Ask him by what pattern he tries to frame his life, and he will tell you that it is the example of Christ, end quote. Does that sound like you? Does that sound like you? Now, I want you to think about that as we look at Peter and we look at how Peter expresses his love for Christ as we look through first and second Peter. We're just going to do really quick scans of different themes, these three different themes, three different passions we see in Peter's life, which tell us that he loved Christ, that he was striving his life, his whole life to become what Jesus asked him that day when he was severely rebuked by the Lord. You know, there's some people who just need the big stick. You know, you try and say, you know, you might want to consider this and you might want to, you know, you just got to get out the big stick and just whoop. And Peter was that kind of guy. He needed the big stick. And you know what? Jesus got his attention. Whoa, I need to love Jesus. I need to love Jesus. Feed the sheep, tend the sheep, shepherd the sheep. Okay, I'm figuring it out. Slow, but he's figuring it out. 
Now, the first way we see Peter expressing his love for Christ in these two epistles that he left us is this. He had a love for the word of God, a love for the word of God. Look at first Peter chapter one, verse 22. First Peter one, verse 22, where we are encouraged to obey the truth. He says, since you have an obedience to the truth. Here, Peter begins to bring truth into the discussion. In verse 23, Christians are reminded, are to remind themselves that they have been born again through the living and enduring word of God. Peter says, you know what? You know how you were saved? The word of God. Not only that, if you look down in verses 24 and 25, he quotes Isaiah 40 verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. And then he adds on, and this is the word that was preached to you. He's establishing the fact that they are saved by the eternal, enduring, active word of God. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 2. There is the strongest command in the Greek here, and it's not be like newborn babes. It says like new more babes, and then the command is long. It's an heiress active imperative. Long for the pure milk of the word. You long for it. Why? Look at what he says, so that you may grow in respect to salvation. So Peter establishes right off the bat here in first Peter that we are saved by the word of God and that we are sanctified or made holy or we grow in Christ by the word of God. Now, that's pretty much all he says about the word of God in first Peter. But turn over to second Peter. Second Peter, he begins to really get with it. We'll see why in a minute. Peter's passion for the word is emphasized starting in chapter 1, verse 2 of 2 Peter. In verse 2, Peter speaks of knowledge. In verse 3, true knowledge. In verse 4, precious and magnificent promises. In verse 12, being established in the truth. The Bible, of course, is the source of knowledge, true knowledge, and the promises of God. But look down in 2 Peter 1, verse 19, which contains some of the greatest statements of the word of God found in all the Bible. He says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure. More sure than what? Well, he just talked about these incredible experiences he had on the Mount of Transfiguration. Better than any experience. He says, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Verse 20. But know this first of all, that is, this is a first and primary truth. Everybody needs to know this as of first importance. First importance, what? That no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy of scripture was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Look down at chapter 3, verse 2 of Second Peter. Peter speaks of the words of the holy prophets and he speaks of the commandment of Christ and he speaks of the teaching of the apostles. Look at verse nine of chapter three. He speaks of the promise of the Lord. Verse 13 of Christ's promises. Verse 18 of the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What does all this tell us? That Peter showed love for Christ by loving the word of Christ. Why is that? Because Jesus is nothing but the incarnate word. Jesus is the word made flesh. He died. Now, if you want to hear from Jesus, you open this book up. And so you cannot love Jesus unless you love the word of Jesus, which is the Bible. Peter's love for Christ gave him a love, a passion, a hunger, a thirst for the word of God because he knew it did two primary things. It saved people and it sanctified people that is it tells us how we are to live our life in every area and so the first thing you need to ask yourself is does this describe me describe me what what is your reaction to the word of god is it one of those things you know that you got your bible and you kind of carry it to church as kind of you know your christian ornament 
Like Spurgeon said, there's dust enough on some of your Bibles to write damnation with your finger. I mean, what, what do you read your Bible? I mean, granted, reading the Bible is such a basic thing, but everybody struggles with it. But when you finally get to it, it's like working out, you know. Yeah, I should probably take a walk or whatever, and you procrastinate. But when you do, you go, I'm thankful for that. Now, when you read your Bible, when you finally do, do you think to yourself, ah, you know, it's just like, you know, the bowl of ice cream on a hot summer night. It's good. Man, that is so good. You may be convicted. Yeah. You may be encouraged. Yeah. But, you know, when you just sit there and you're reading slow and you're just thinking about it and it's just blessing you, does that happen to you or not? Think about it. Do you love the word of God? I can tell you this, that people who do not love God's word do not love Christ. The second way we see Peter expressing his love for Christ is that he has a holy hatred for false teachers, false teaching and false living. Now, a lot of people think that you know, we'll tell you that the theme of second Peter is false teachers. Really, the theme of second Peter is true living. But Peter, in an effort to make sure they live the truth, has to address those who are eroding the truth. And those are the false teachers. The reason he attacks false teachers and their false doctrine is that he wants to make sure people live the truth. So we've established that we love Christ by loving his truth. Now we want to see that if you love Christ, you will have a holy hatred and antipathy against both false teachers and their teaching. Now you heard me right there. Some people say, well, we aren't, we aren't to hate anybody. Well, think about that. Are we or not? This is something very interesting. There is, there is this very interesting little doctrine that I, nobody writes about. I want to write something about it. I'm going to, I'm going to tell, tell you about it here. I want you, you know, if you have thoughts about this, if you find things, I want to know about this. I'm, I'm looking for information. God seems to have a holy hatred towards certain groups of sinners. Maybe all of them. I don't know. For instance, in Psalm 5, God says, I hate the wicked. Now, we are all told, you know, love the sinner and hate the sin. And God says, I hate the sinner. It kind of messes up the whole paradigm. In Psalm 31, 6, the psalmist says, I hate those who regard vain idols. Now, it's not God speaking, but it is a human speaking, hating the very things that God hates. In Psalm 119, 158, the psalmist says, Behold, I behold the treacherous and loathe them. Why? Because they do not keep your word. Well, that kind of includes everybody who doesn't know Christ, right? We ought to be loathing them. Hmm. In Psalm 139, 21 and 22, Psalm 139 is the great psalm, you know, whether I, you know, you can't escape from God, his omnipresence and whatever. And everybody loves to read that until they get to the last part. Let me read the last part. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Now, have you ever thought of applying that? Think about that. That is interesting. I wonder about that. And you should see how commentaries deal with this. Oh, well, you know, we know that, you know, um, you know, Jesus said we are to love our enemies and just kind of. Now, listen, when God says things in the Old Testament, you have to realize Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. There are a couple kinds of things that God says. Some of things arise from his nature, his character, his being, which is unchanging. Other things arise from certain things he says. You know, 
ceremonial things, observance of days, things like that. And he can, he can change those laws anytime he wants, but he can never say, oh, now it's okay to lie. Now it's okay to murder. See, those kind of statements come from the character of his being, like hatred of sinners. And so when I look at this, and, you know, I've been pondering this for, you know, about five years now. And I ask myself, how do you do this? How do you obey this part? What does this teach us? Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, arrogance, and the evil way, and the perverted mouth I hate. Well, Solomon says, I hate the perverted mouth. You know, who, who is prideful? Men are. Who is arrogant? Men are. Who speaks perversions? Men do. And yet we have these statements in the, in the New Testament which are crystal clear. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. You may be wondering to yourself, how does this relate to Peter? We'll get back there. Just hang on. You need to think this with me because if we get to the part that we need to get to, you'll see why. You think about this and I ask myself, okay, okay, okay. If we are to, if we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, obviously it is never right to be hateful towards anyone who does you harm. Whether they kill your wife or kill your children or steal your property or slander you or do you evil or do anything like that. It's never right. Jesus says, man, you need to love them and you need to forgive them. And so that is clear. And those are the kind of things we usually try and justify. Well, you don't know what they did to me. But surely Jesus wasn't contradicting what the Holy Spirit inspired the Old Testament, Old Testament writers to write when he said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Surely Jesus wasn't a bad model. When he hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them for they know what they do. And he's speaking to the people who had just falsely accused him, tortured him and crucified him. Surely Stephen, the first martyr of the church, wasn't wrong when he said the same thing as people pummeled him with stones to death. He just said, Lord, forgive him. There's this love there. There's this pace. There's no anger. There's no hostility. Jesus went like a lamb to the slaughter that is silent before it shears. So it's clear that persecution is not an excuse to hate. But nevertheless, there is this category. This times in Jesus's ministry. When he gets in front of religious hypocrites and false teachers. And he tears into them with a holy vengeance. You blind guides of the blind. You snakes. You vipers, you children of hell, children of Satan. That's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, 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 those are that, that, you know, qualifies as name calling. (laughs) You know, I mean, Jesus unloads on them. He humiliates them in public. He exposes their error. He, he just attacks them in public. He calls them names. He condemns them just right out there in the open. You think, man, that's, yeah, be like Jesus. You ever think about that? Oh, that is interesting. That just makes me wonder. Nobody's ever, no, I can't find anything written on this. I want to know about this. You're to be like Jesus, right? Well, there you go. You think about John the Baptist. You know, they they come down and some of the Pharisees are coming down. You know, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You snakes, you vipers. The axe is already laid at the root of the tree. It's like, hey, hey, we just went baptized. You know, it's like, whoa, whoa, hey, hey, hey. You know, I mean, we're just, you're just trying to do the ritual here. And he just, gah. And you're thinking, man, what is that? How come, uh, you know, and it's not that, it's not that, I'm trying to say we need to cancel out the verses that Jesus said we need to love sinners because that would be wrong. But it would be equally wrong to cancel out the verses that says God hates sinners and that we see Jesus heaping abuse and condemning and the psalmist and the 
and Solomon saying, I hate these evil people. How do you apply that? I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But I can say this. Jesus is an example we need to follow. And surely John the Baptist, the greatest man ever born of woman, is a good example. And surely Peter is a good example. And so as we go through Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1, and go down through chapter 3, verse 17, I'm just going to pick on a few verses, and I want you to notice how Paul addresses these false teachers. Now, mind you, he loves the word of God. And if you're going to love the word of God, you have to hate error. You have to hate error. You can't love error and love the word of God. Those that's that's impossible. And so Peter Goes after, and I broke these up into two pieces, goes after the false teachers in two pieces. First, he addresses their behavior, and second, their condemnation. Let's look at each of these quickly, so you can just kind of see how he does this. Look in verse 1 of Second Peter chapter 2. They are described as false prophets, false teachers, heretics, and those who deny Christ. Now, mind you, when Peter wrote this, he's writing this to a bunch of churches. The false teachers have crept in. And think about this. Let's just say you're a false teacher. And you're in one of these churches. And all of a sudden, hey, special delivery from the apostle Peter. And this is what Peter says to you. You're a false prophet, a false teacher, a heretic, and you deny Christ. You're given over to your sensuality, verse 2. And you malign the truth. And then in verse 6, he says, you are the ungodly. Verse 9, he says, you are the unrighteous. Verse 10, he says, you indulge in the flesh and its corrupt desires. You despise authority. You're daring. You're self-willed. You're disrespectful to angelic powers and authority. Verse 12, you live like an unreasoning animal. You're led by natural instincts. You're reviling authority in ignorance. Verse 13, you are stains and blemishes reveling in the daytime, reveling in your deceptions, carousing in the open. Verse 14, you have eyes full of adultery. You never cease from sin, enticing others to sin. Greedy hearted. Verse 15, forsaking the right way, loving the wages of unrighteousness. Verse 17, You're a spring without water. You're a mist driven by a storm. Verse 18, you speak arrogant words of vanity. You're enticed by your fleshly desires and sensuality. You're living in error. Verse 19, you're slaves of corruption, entangled in sin. Verse 20 and 20 through 22, you return are turning to your error and receiving after receiving the knowledge of the truth. You're like a dog that returns to its vomit or a sow after washing returns to the mire to get defiled all over again. Telling you that is not very seeker sensitive. (laughs) And he just lays into him. Do you see how that that's a lot of stuff there, isn't it? And that he's name calling and just scorn and just exposes them and just yeah. How would you like somebody to say that about you? Look down at Second Peter three three. They're described as mockers, following after their own lusts. Verse four of Second Peter three, doubting the second coming of Christ. Verse five, forgetting. God's word, verse 7, ungodly men, verse 16, distorting the truth, verse 17, unprincipled. And what what I it seems here is that Peter, like Christ, doesn't have a problem with sinners. Jesus dealt with the woman at the well, he dealt with the prostitute, and you know, he dealt with Zacchaeus, and you know, I mean, Sinners would come to him and he would just be kind to them. He'd be patient with them. That's the sinners is not a problem. But both Peter and Jesus, whenever they deal with false teachers. Now, a false teacher is not somebody who's merely jumping into hell. They're jumping into hell and taking along other men, women and children with them. And then he just goes after them. We see the same thing in Peter's life that we see in Christ's life. He just has this mm, passion against those who teach error. And not only that, 
he proclaims their inevitable judgment. This is the second way we see his antipathy against these false teachers. Look at Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1 again. Go back to the beginning. And we'll trace the judgment theme here. In verse 1, he says, they bring swift destruction, destruction upon themselves. Verse 3, their judgment and destruction is active. It is certain. It is awake. That is, it's not idle. And their judgment is certain, just like, verse 4, God's judgment of angels when they sinned. And just like, verse 5, God's judgment of the world of evil men in the days of Noah. And, verse 6, just like God's judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah when they practiced their immorality. And then in verse 9, Peter says, God is keeping them under punishment for the day of judgment. It's like, well, he's not only punishing them, but he's keeping them for a greater punishment. Verse 12, they're described as creatures to be captured, killed, and destroyed. How would you like to be described as that? You're nothing but a creature. You're just a mouse. You know, you're a cockroach. To be captured, killed, and destroyed. Those are hard words. Verse 13, he says, they presently suffer wrong. Verse 14, accursed by God. Verse 17, those for whom the black darkness has been reserved. You know, they have a reservation like you get a reservation at a hotel. But their reservation is with the black darkness. Verse 20, 20, they are doubly damned. For receiving the truth, escaping for error, from error for a time, and then turning back to it again. Look at Second Peter 3, verse 7, where Peter says they will be destroyed along with the earth on the judgment day. Verse 10, they will be destroyed with fire in the day of judgment. Verse 11, they will be destroyed. Verse 12, destroyed, burn up with intense heat. Verse 16, destined for destruction. That's pretty clear, isn't it? God's going to get them, in other words. Why? I mean, why... Is this group singled out? Well, I think it's because they're false teachers. Now, we need to love others as Christ loved others. We need to ask ourselves, what is our attitude towards false teaching? Even if we just say, okay, well, we're just going to hate their doctrine and their lifestyle. Do you do that? That is the question. Do you hate false doctrine and false living? The church has become too tolerant of false teachers and ungodliness. And we have been cowed into remaining silent when those who profess to know Christ end up preaching error. And I've not been able to figure out in what situations it's right to hate and and not hate. I will tell you that. But I can tell you this. We need to be like Jesus. And we need to be like Peter. The third way we see Peter's love for Christ is that he has a passion for obeying God's word and living a holy life. So he loves God's word. He hates the error and the lifestyle, which is in opposition to God's word. But he does love Christ by loving a holy life. Look at first Peter back at first Peter chapter one, verse two. Follow me as I go through again this theme A life of obedience. He says in verse 2 that we are saved and sanctified by the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ. Then then obedience is described in verse 13 of 1 Peter 1. As preparing your mind for action, keeping sober in spirit, fixing your hope on God's future grace. Verse 14, that we are to be obedient children, not conformed to our former lusts. Verses 15 and 16, we are to be holy like God. I mean, that's a pretty high standard. In all our behavior... Verse 17, we are to pray to God, conduct ourselves in the fear of God. Verse 18, we are to reject our former futile way of life. Verse 22, we are to obey the truth, purify our souls with the truth in order to fervently love the brethren from our hearts. And if you look at verse chapter 2, verse 1, Peter tells us to put aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Verse 11 of chapter 2, we are to abstain from fleshly lusts. Verse 12, we are to keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles or unbelievers in order to practice our good deeds for the purpose of being a good witness to them. If you look down at verse 13 and 14, we are told to obey Christ by submitting to the government. Verses 18 through 20, we are to obey Christ by submitting to masters or employers. And verse 21 to 25, we are to submit just like Christ submitted to those earthly authorities who eventually crucified and killed him. And chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, if you're a wife, you're to submit to your husband, even if he's disobedient to the word. 
And verse 7, if you're a husband, you need to love your wife. And if that's not enough, if you're a Christian, you need to, according to chapter 3, verse 8, you need to be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit. Verse 9, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. Verse 10, keeping your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. Verse 11, turning away from evil and doing good. Verse 12, praying. Verse 13, being zealous for what is good. That's not all. Verse 2 of chapter 4. We are to live no longer in the lust of the flesh according to the will of God. We are to be sound in judgment, sober in spirit. Verse 8. We are to be devoted in prayer. Verse 9. Hospitable to the others. Verse 10. Using our spiritual gifts to serve others in the church. Verse 11. Using our spiritual gifts to serve others, our speaking gifts to serve others in the church. Verse 17. We are to be diligent to judge each other in order to maintain purity in the church. And then Peter picks up submission again, says, elders, submit to Jesus in chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. In verse 5, he says, younger men, submit to the elders and clothe yourself with humility. In verses 6 and 7, we are all to humble ourselves, cast all our cares upon Jesus because it's the antidote for anxiety. In verses 8 and 9, we are to be sober in spirit, remembering we are in a spiritual battle against Satan and his evil forces. And when you go to Second Peter... The next book, chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, Peter says in verse 4, we are to escape the corruption that is the world by lust. We are to, verse 5, apply all diligence in our faith, striving for moral excellence and knowledge. Verse 6, we are to exercise self-control, perseverance, and godliness. Verse 7, we are to be kind and loving. Verse 10, we are to practice these things so that we will never stumble. And if you look at verse 3, verse 1, we are to remember the truth. Four through six, remember God's judgment of the past. Verse nine, we are to make sure we practice and preach repentance. Verse 11, we are to be holy in conduct and godliness. Verse 14, we are to live in peace with others, having um, a spotless and blameless character. Verse 17, we are to stay on guard against false teachers and those who live contrary to the truth. And we are to live a steadfast life. Verse 18, we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And if you do that, you're fine. Now, when you look at that, you obviously, it's obvious that Peter understood that if we love Christ, we what? We keep his commandments. We keep his commandments. And so I ask you this as we get ready to close here. Do you have a love for the word of God? Do you have a hatred Against false teaching and ungodliness. Do you have a fervent desire to obey Christ in every area of your life? And if you can't say yes, you can't say you love Christ. Because that's what it means to love Christ. And Peter shows us over and over. I hope this was convincing. Jesus, though, is the answer to not loving Christ. You know, you can't just conjure up in yourself, you know, a whole bunch of love for Christ to carry you through from now on to ever. You need to, you need to come to faith in Jesus Christ. You need to humbly bow before him and receive his death on the cross on your behalf. You need to give your life to Christ and turn from everything to follow him. J.C. Ryle gives us this test. It's quick, but it's a good one. You love Christ? If, see how you answer these. Eh, You love Christ if you like to think about him. Secondly, if you like to hear about him. Third, if you like to read about him. Fourth, if you like to please him. Five, If we like his friends, six, if we are jealous about his name and honor, seven, if we like to talk to him, and eight, if we like to always be with him. Did you pass the test? That's what it means to love Christ. Now, I just want to close with a little short hymn. It was written by a woman, a wife of a Presbyterian minister who suffered all her life in pain and grief. There was hardly a day, she said, when she didn't suffer some pretty severe pain. And at the low point in her life, after losing two of her children, she wrote these words. 
Her name was Elizabeth Prentice. More love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. Hear thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea. More love, O Christ, to thee. Once earthly joy I craved, sought peace and rest. Now thee alone I seek, give what is best. This all my prayer shall be, more love, O Christ, to thee. Let sorrow do its works and grief and pain. Sweet are the messengers, sweet their refrain. When they can sing with me, more love, O Christ, to thee. Then shall my latest breath whisper thy praise. This be my parting cry, my heart shall rise. This still its prayer shall be. More love, O Christ, to thee. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for Peter. And that he apparently, towards the end of his life, had a very strong and focused love for you. We know that's where we all need to go, even though we're at different stages. Father, I pray that if there's somebody here who has never given their life to Christ and never come to repentance and faith and Jesus has never really turned from their wicked way and their unrighteous thoughts and received the free gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ, help them to do that. And for the rest of us, help us to remember that we love Christ because he first loved us and gave himself for us. May we love the word of God. May we hate false teaching and false living. And may we strive after holiness because that is how we show love to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.